Welcome, welcome. This is Plato's Pod, episode number five. Today is March 28, 2021. This episode is audio recording of the live meetup discussion. We meet through Toronto Philosophy Meetup, Calgary Philosophy Meetup, and Online Rebels. I'm Eva Ellis. I'm proud and privileged online event coordinator for this live episode and discussion. And now I'm excited to pass the screen to James Myers now. James, what are we discussing today? Well, thank you very much, Eva, and uh, very glad to be here this morning to discuss the first part of Plato's Phaedrus. Uh, so a fairly long dialogue, and we'll divide it into two parts, doing the first part today, covering 257C. Then we'll we'll tackle the, the next part the next time. And I think there's a a few questions here that we can use today to maybe set ourselves up for the second part. So we'll we'll see if we can understand where Plato is going with this dialogue. But it's a fascinating dialogue. And I've read it, I think, now three times. And each time that I read it, I discover new things. And I think that's the one of the joys about Plato is that it's never you never just stop. Every time, every time you read it and every time you discuss it, you discover new new things. And so I'm also pleased to say that our podcast is finally going online. It is available now through rss.com slash podcasts, and uh, it should be going on Spotify, I hope, in the next day or two. It's just waiting uh, the approval process to uh, to start streaming on Spotify. So, But I've, I've actually enjoyed over the past few days re-listening to some of our previous episodes I was actually re-listening yesterday to our episode on the Mino, which is actually going, we're, we're going to touch on that, I think, a number of times today, because there's a number of themes in the Phaedrus that are very, um, very much related to the idea of knowledge as recollection, which was one of the big themes in the Mino, knowledge as recollection. And that certainly appears here in the Phaedrus. Did I say Phaedo? I, I meant to say Phaedrus. I always get the, the, the two of those confused because we did do the Phaedo as well. And the Phaedo is about the soul and the Phaedrus is about the soul. So uh, again, this idea of soul that, that Plato brings in here. And so, you know, as we discuss the idea of the soul, just, you know, invite everybody to kind of contribute their thoughts as to what you think soul is and do you think it actually exists? And if it exists, how does it exist? My own conception tends to be kind of more on the mathematical and geometric side. And that's kind of the the screen background that I used a few episodes ago here is this image of pi and this just infinitely swirling um, series of numbers, none of which repeats. So this is the image of my screen. So I was feeling a little bit mathematical this morning. And I think Plato, certainly being a geometer and somebody who brings numbers and math into his works, I think there are some connections there. And I was especially inspired by attending a session on Friday on the Parmenides, one of Plato's probably most inscrutable dialogues. There's a very important distinction in Parmenides in words. And so there's this idea of the the distinction between being and becoming. And we saw the word becoming in the Timaeus when we discussed the Timaeus. And Phaedrus, which we're discussing today, is really touches on differences in meanings of words. That's one of the themes that we'll explore in the beginning part of the uh, the Phaedrus today. So very to uh, again be able to hopefully stimulate a, a dialogue and I, I think the you know it's up to our participants to decide where they want to go in in the discussion I have a 
paragraph that I thought we could start with. Maybe we can start here and see where the ideas go. There's no particular order to things. And uh, again, just wanted to welcome those who are just joining us and and those who are new in particular uh, joining us. And that's great. There's no there's no need for experience in Plato. I think we can all learn from our own dialogue and to the extent that we get interested in in the ideas that Plato makes. Well, you know, everybody's welcome to to participate and, and to discuss. So just a reminder, we'll use the raise hands feature on Zoom uh, if you'd like to speak. And uh, I will uh, take the, the comments in order and I'll, I'll give preference to those who haven't spoken before, but uh, very much looking forward to this morning's discussion. Yeah, so as I said, I, I've read Phaedrus three times and each time I read it, I find new meaning in it. So the very first time that I read it, I was really struck by the idea of aerodynamics. Uh, and that was at Stephanus reference 246E to 247E. And I was really struck by that because this is, in the Phaedrus, Plato uses this metaphor of the charioteer and these two flying horses pulling the chariot along. And I was really struck by kind of the science of, of aerodynamics in, in, those two, uh, in those passages. And then the second time I read it was, I was struck by the connection between the symbology that the soul uses to communicate with other souls. And that's, you know, in particular at section 244, which I think we'll, uh, we'll hopefully discuss today. And then the third, the third time that I read it, I was really struck by the idea of the forms. And so we haven't really talked about Plato's theory of forms directly in this podcast series yet, but I think this opening paragraph is actually maybe a good entrance to that to get a sense of maybe what the forms could be. I think this is something that's, you know, many Plato scholars over hundreds of years, thousands of years maybe, uh, have been kind of wondering what the forms are. And so I wanted to start with this paragraph maybe as a um, as a way of, you know, getting into that discussion. So Eva, if you wouldn't mind sharing your screen, and this is uh, a slide that's uh, posted on the shared drive on the meetup notice, and it's the last page of this that I thought we could start with. Joel S., if you would be kind enough to read this passage at 249C for us, it would be very much appreciated. The soul's capacity ranging from general reality to particular reality, 249C. But a soul that never saw the truth cannot take human shape, since a human being must understand speech in terms of general forms, proceeding to bring many perceptions together into a reasoned unity. The process is the recollection of the things our soul saw when it was traveling with God, when it disregarded the things we now call real and lifted up its head what is truly real instead. For just this reason, it is fair that only a philosopher's mind grows wings, since its memory always keeps it as close as possible to those realities by being close to which the gods are divine. A man who, who uses reminders of these things correctly is always at the highest, most perfect level of initiation. He is the only one who is perfect as perfect can be. He stands outside human concerns and draws close to the divine. Ordinary people think he is disturbed and rebuke him for this, unaware that he is possessed by God. 
Now this takes me to the whole point of my discussion of the fourth kind of madness, that which someone shows when he sees the beauty we have down here and is reminded of true beauty. Then he takes wings and flutters in his eagerness to rise up, but is unable to do so. He gazes aloft like a bird, paying no attention to what is down below, and that is what brings on him the charge that he has gone mad. Thank you for that, Joel. And I think um, I was thinking we could maybe just start in that very first sentence of this, uh, and in particular, the this idea that uh, a human being must understand speech in terms of general forms, proceeding to bring many perceptions together into a reasoned unity. Um, and so the term general forms there really struck me as I read this the third time, this the, the dialogue the third time, and this idea of bringing perceptions into a reasoned unity, um, unity being kind of a theme of the Parmenides, that session that I attended on Friday, but also this idea of a reasoned account, uh, which is something that we covered in our discussion of the Mino. And I just wonder what, what people think about that particular sentence. And, and I'll put the question there. Do you believe what uh, Socrates is saying here, that a human being must understand speech in terms of general forms? Socrates saying that that's a fact. Is that, a, is that in fact, a fact? Um, does anybody have any thoughts on, on uh, you know, that, that particular sentence? Is this necessarily the case? I'm just wondering, is this something that we could tie into our own experience um, and our own understanding of speech, for example? You know, as I, as I re-listened to our episode on the Mino, there was disagreement on a particular term. Um, I think one of the participants today used the term intelligence, and one of the other participants was thinking of the term knowledge. Um, so those are two those are two different words, but maybe to people they mean the same thing to some people, and maybe to other people they mean different things. And I'm just wondering uh, what everyone thinks of this idea of, of being able to speak in a way that brings us to a, a reasoned unity. Leish, welcome. Hey, thank you. Um, so I do have a lot of questions about the general forms, um, but when I think of speech, I think of communication, and um, I just read something that I'm not sure what you all think of, but um, some uh, someone was saying that Plato's idea of philosophy might not necessarily be what my idea of philosophy is, which would be um, going through these philosophic texts and thinking of these ideas, but for Plato, it had an element of communication and dialogue with other people. And that's what, even though I haven't read much of Plato, what I have read, it is very narrative. And as you were saying, I guess if Plato was a dramatist, then that makes sense because he's a good storyteller. And it's always on the basis of not someone sitting alone in their office 
reflecting and meditating on ideas, but having a conversation and learning through this synergy of others. So I think it's really interesting. And honestly, I didn't notice that word speech when I was reading it the first time until you just read this paragraph. But it seems that there's something um, about something sacred and divine about this process of communication. Oh, thank you. I mean, that's, uh, I think you really touched on a very important point to this dialogue and that, that being the idea of communication and the idea that the soul, if we think the soul exists, then souls need to communicate with each other, right? It's not, our bodies aren't doing the communication. It's actually the animating forces in us that are doing the communication, Right, like our bodies can be used. Like I'm using my hands on the screen now, talking with my hands. But the the communication is coming in my words, and I think the meaning that everybody else is making is is from my words and from the words that you just used, Leishan. And you use some very key words. I like that word synergy that that you used. You know, the idea that if one of us says something, then another can pick up on it and amplify it, and and we can take this these ideas in different directions which we can't just do if we're just reading maybe. And maybe this is one of the, the things that Plato had, like people say Plato was against writing. I'm not sure that he was against writing, but I think he was against, maybe he was against writing in a way that didn't encourage subsequent communication, which I think you just pointed is, is so key, this, this idea that, um, that we have to communicate. And certainly this dialogue is about communication and, and I think understanding what each other is saying. Um, James, I have a question. Yes. What, what uh, do you think is uh, this word here means like reasoned unity? Mm -hmm. So like what is the reason unity that uh, it's considered like perceptions to we're going with percep perceptions of uh, togetherness into a reasoned unity. Mm -hmm. So what, what, what are the things that are uniting? Mm -hmm. Exactly. And, and that's a great question. You know, this uh, unity is something that's united. So it's bringing, it's the bringing of things together. Um, you know, in speech, there's so many different ideas that are being expressed. And so maybe, you know, and I'll put the question to everybody else too. I mean, but maybe it's the idea of bringing different perspectives into a unity. So each one of us has our own unique perspectives based on our own unique experiences. Uh, but at some point to understand each other, do we need to bring these perspectives into some sort of harmony or some sort of some sort of unity. Um, JK, what do you think about that? Yeah, is, uh, is, he, is he saying that the, uh, in order for the soul to even, um, you know, be um, entertained, that it has to be part of the public sphere of, uh, of culture, you know, and, uh, and it is a, uh, it is a, Language is a process of communication among people, right? Mm -hmm. And a person can't learn language by himself, but it's a uh, it is a language uh, it is a language that is uh, acquired by 
interacting with other people. You know, there's only, uh, you know, so is the soul a kind of a public uh, uh, do domain? <laughs> well, that's a fascinating question. Uh, I don't know what everybody thinks about that, but, you know, as you say the word public, it makes me think this idea that, um, you know, we're all picking up on things from each other, um, certainly. And, uh, uh, you know, maybe this idea of sharing some sort of common space, it's not, so the soul isn't, it's obviously not visible. And in the Fido, uh, the other dialogue that we, we did before we started recording podcasts, but we did discuss the Fido, I mean, the soul was presented as something that's invisible, not visible. So that invisible thing could still maybe be public, as you were saying, JK, but not in a visible way. It, it's public in the invisible realm and in the sense that there is a sharing idea. Um, you know, in, in this idea of, of, of you know, one's, one person's soul being able to communicate with another person's soul, but using some sort of invisible channel, maybe. And that's uh, uh, certainly one of the ideas that we can explore. And, you know, one of the ideas, one of the ideas that Plato brings to us in this first part of Phaedrus that we're discussing today is the nine grades of the soul that he talks about. Um, at uh, it is at uh, 248 uh, D to E, um, the nine different levels or grades of the soul and, and the ability of the soul to understand things based on, based on its recollection. So Plato's presenting the soul as something that never dies. In fact, it's one of the, the other readings that uh, we'll hopefully get to Today, actually, I think Eva was just scrolling on the screen. It was number two, I think, Eva. Um, the, the next page, the, that section that the soul is presented as immortal. It never dies because it never ends. Uh, so if it never ends, maybe we're, our souls are all connected in some way and, and able to communicate with each other. So the, the, the second reading, which we'll get to maybe later, is at 245C to 246C. Um, and this idea that the soul is immortal and, and that communication channel, that, that kind of public, invisible presence of the soul never ends. Um, so, yeah, and I just, I wanted to explore that idea of communication that, that they, sh you know, connected to the, the idea of communication. Maybe it's just use an example of a question that um, uh, Joel G put to me earlier today, and this was a, a question that maybe has to do with our understanding of the word science. Okay, so in our last episode on the Carmides, we talked about the nature of science, and in particular, um, the nature of temperance as a science of self. Um, so the question is, what do we word mean by the word science? Like, how is the definition of that word established? And is the definition of that word consistent through time. Um, and so the question that uh, Joel G put to me earlier was, uh, would you consider somebody who teaches mathematics for a living to be a scientist? And it made me think, well, how do we, do we classify teachers as scientists? If they're teaching a science, does that make them a scientist? 
And maybe if you asked the teacher the question, you might get a different answer than if you asked the student the question. Or if you didn't, if you asked somebody the question who didn't really even know what teaching mathematics involved, maybe somebody who has never been taught mathematics, would they have a different idea of the answer to that question, what is a scientist? And so this maybe gets us into this idea of definition and the idea of the general form uh, of understanding uh, or of understanding speech in general forms. So generally, what do we think of, of the meaning of scientist? And so this goes back to that paragraph that uh, Joel S. just read, that 249C, you know, what's the general form of science or of scientist? What's, what's the, what meaning do we derive from that? And then is that meaning kind of static over time or does it change over time? Because it really leads, My I think. Answer? Yeah, by all means. My take on that is that does the meaning, is it static or is it, does it change over time? I think it does change over time. And uh, I, can't, I cannot help but to be reminded of the great Wittgenstein's famous saying, meaning is use. So in this sense, I almost can apply that to soul is communication almost. So the meaning does not necessarily reside in definition. Of course, it's a very definition and the dictionary is very, very, it's a great tool that we have. So I definitely respect that. But also the definition or in the sense meaning is depending on how we use between different people. And mm -hmm. even that changes over time, the definition of, for example, car, it seems like it's static, but also depending on the form of forms of life, the way that we use cars, well, it won't change today to tomorrow, from today to tomorrow, this year to next year. But we, you know, after 100 years, even that would slightly change. So all those little increments change, it adds up to where actually after some time, it's a huge change. So I think it's always changing and we may not perceive it that way, but it does change. And in that sense, the meaning is or soul, maybe it's not the soul is something that you possess. Meaning is not something that resides in the dictionary. It's just depending on the way that we communicate, the way that we use. So it's ever evolving concept. And I was thinking about that in language and definition, but now at this point, I could even apply that to soul, where it's not something static, but it is something that's more fluid. And it does have a meaning or it does have a standing or it does manifest not just within myself, because it is my soul, but rather it's more of a, it manifests within how I live with other people. That you, you bring up some very powerful ideas and, I, and, and presented, I think, very powerfully, Jean. So thank you and, and welcome, Jean, to, to this discussion. It's, uh, it's great that you're, you were able to join us today and so very much appreciate that. And, and you know, the idea that meaning is use, and you, and you mentioned Wittgenstein, who I, I wish I had, it, when I have more time, I will definitely look at his ideas. I did start to spend a little bit of time looking at 
Wittgenstein, and I think it was last summer. And my understanding of Wittgenstein is that a lot of what he talks about is the symbology of of language and and the definitions that we use. And so, Gene, you mentioned uh, the idea that meaning is use, and I think that's a powerful idea. Uh, and use, you said, changes over time. And so, you know, I was thinking there, there's a couple of examples of that. A word that I see a lot now, which I didn't see 10 years ago, is the word impact, right? So uh, 10 years ago, everybody would have said effect. It has an effect on me. Now it's always impact, 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 right? And so impact 10 years ago meant primarily a collision. And now it's being used in a way that it means effect. The other word that I was, that, that annoys me to no end the way it's used in a sense that I don't think is appropriate is the word intelligence, right? So I'm watching a television last week and a car commercial comes on uh, touting the car's intelligent all-wheel drive as if this vehicle has, because in my mind, the word intelligence means the ability to um, create meaning, right? And, and to apply meaning and to use wisdom and all of that. I mean, that's what intelligence means to me. The car has been programmed by a human programmer to operate in a certain way. And so can we say that that program is intelligence? I don't know. I mean, it's, but it, it's the way that the word has become in use. And, and you pointed that, that out, Gene. So so thank you. I, I think that's, that was really powerful. And the word of the use or the use of the word fluid with respect to the, the soul, I think certainly fits with uh, what Plato was talking about here. And what I mentioned at the beginning, kind of the aerodynamics of the soul and uh, uh, paragraph references uh, 246E through 247E, um, that kind of fluid, fluid dynamics or aerodynamics uh, of the soul there is, uh, is an important point. So anyway, I've, I've spoken too much as always, but I will um, move on. I see Jane has her hand up and Joel has his hand up and uh, Joel S. So we'll go with uh, Jane and then Joel G. Jane? Hi, everybody. Really glad to be here. Um, I really liked what was just said by James and Jean, uh, but I'm, I'm going to first start off with a question that was asked a little bit earlier on about what is science. So to me, when I think about what is science, uh, I imagine it to be a collection of facts that are that are in a sort of system that are systemized uh, in a specific area of human knowledge. That is the way that I would perceive a science. And to answer a question, I would say that a, a teacher who is who is working within mathematics would would definitely be at least in some sense of science, because they're working within that field of knowledge that contains like a system. So, um, and I also wanted to comment about the um, 249C text. The way that I understand to me, the way that I perceived general forms is to be the, uh, to be like Plato's ideas. And so to, to me, it meant that a human being must understand like by understanding speech, we understand certain conceptions and ideas. And so have like a true profound understanding of those platonic ideas, I guess, in a way. Um, and then the next part is really interesting. So proceeding to bring many perceptions together into a reasoned unity. The way that I see it is that 
um, at least in like the the platonic world, I guess, is that we are all we are all souls that have seen have had a glimpse in one way or another of those of those platonic ideas. But the thing is, those were just like small glimpses. And when we come together and when we discuss things, each of us has been able to see a sort of different aspect of the idea from maybe like a, a different uh, viewpoint angle. And so when we come together, we start discussing it. We understand that we have different perceptions, but those perceptions can somehow work together to create something bigger. So if we look at like the idea, the platonic idea as this maybe um like shape that has many, many sides to it. Each one of us has seen a separate side. So that's why we each sort of, we can perceive the same idea or definition differently. But when we join, we can sort of put it together. Like, oh, I saw this side. Well, I saw this side and we put it together to recreate that big giant form, even though maybe it's not the best word, form or idea together. That, that's all I wanted to say. Thank you. Well, that's, uh, you raised some very intriguing ideas like what you said Jane I think just about ideas being multifaceted and we're only able to see you know because my experience is limited to certain things and I haven't had the same experience that you have or anybody else has that I'm only able to see one particular side of an idea and if we equate ideas to shapes you know shapes being kind of invisible whereas the physical world is visible um you know, maybe it's in combining these shapes or these facets of ideas that we're seeing that we can see the whole shape, but we have to do that together. We can't do that individually. I love the way you express that. I mean, that that's that's so powerful. And, and that's an example, I think, of how uh, we learn from these dialogues because I hadn't thought about that. So I'm going to keep that multifaceted idea uh, in, in my mind. And I think that's, you, you picked up on a really good um part of that uh, 249C, um, the, um, uh, I do want to pick up on another connection to the second part of the Phaedrus that we'll um, talk about next time. But the other point that I wanted to bring to what you just mentioned, Jane, is the idea that, uh, you know, each of us has a certain amount of recollection. Uh, but in, in this, in the, in the dialogue, Plato does say that, you know, the soul can forget things. <clears throat> so, um, you know, again, this this tying this back to the Mino, where Socrates says, uh, you know, knowledge is recollection, and then at the end of the Mino, he says, recollection is the account of the reasons why. So we make this account of the reasons why, and I'm I'm going to put the question to people: Where do you start making the account of the reasons why? Do you start making the account from the way things are now and you go backwards to the way they began or do you start at the way they began and work your way up to the way to the way things are now and i think that's a fundamental question maybe that's present in the parmenides so um but let, let's explore that question again about the definition of you know scientists for example as an example of how souls communicate and, and how do we actually draw those definitions how do we Where's the dividing line between definitions um, and does it relate to the forms? Um, I'll go to Joel G. You have your hand up and then Joel S. Joel G. Hey guys. 
So I had a qu uh, this question relates to what James asked originally, and it's tied in with what Jane, uh, Jane said at first. So I want to get the group's opinion on this to help me uh, walk me through this and piece together. What would you do in this scenario? So about a week ago, <clears throat> I came across a really old debate I found way back in 2014 of uh, a debate between uh a cosmologist slash theoretical physicist and a mathematician. And they were, they were getting into this whole debate about internal inflation, cosmological constants, just everything that involved the universe, if you will. So both they were, uh, they were, while they were debating between each other, they were making really good valid points from one another. But then of course the mathematician kept making a very quick joke in the rebuttal saying, well, if you allow me, I like to think as myself as a scientist, I'm a mathematician. And I like, I didn't really understand why he felt the need to point that out. So like, I, like after the debate, I Googled him and looked up his credentials and he's like a professor mathematician at Oxford university. But would you, my question is to you guys, would you consider uh, a mathematician or a professor to be an actual scientist? Cause in my mind, I'm thinking, the theoretical physicist or the cosmologist, he's the guy who's like after the debate, he's going to go out into the real world and actually conduct measurements. Whereas I think the mathematician is, you know, sitting in the classroom waiting for the formulas to come in to work it out. So uh, what do you guys think about that? Who, who, who would be classified as a scientist there? Are they both or is the, is it the theoretical physicist? Thanks, uh, Joel. And, and it, it's really, I think that question is such a good introduction to the second part of the Phaedrus that we'll talk about in two weeks, and in particular at uh, 275A and B, um, where Plato draws a distinction between reminding and recollecting. Um, so I'll just, uh, I won't say anything more about it at this point, not spoiler alert or anything like that, but uh, uh, I did want to just mention that as, as a way of getting us thinking about the next part that we'll discuss in two weeks and this idea about communication, which is really uh, quite prevalent in the second part. Uh, and, and I'm really interested in hearing the answers to the question that you just raised. Um, so we'll go to uh, Joel S. and then to Jane. Joel? Uh, yes, thank you very much for your comments and for what it's worth, uh, Joel, I'm not sure if you're my namesake or I'm yours, but I would consider the mathematician to be a scientist, but I can't say that I've given the problem a lot of thought or even ever considered it before this instant, but that would just be my perception. What, what, I, what I was trying to, um, uh, to speak to is this entire first sentence in English at two 49c and focus if we might on a single preposition and i wonder if we're striking up against the limitations of translation and whether reading this in the original language with an understanding of how that language was used during plato's time would help us and the preposition is that i'm thinking of is when we get to the very last three words in the sentence, a reasoned unity. And I'm thinking of the preposition a. And I wonder if that could easily be translated or related in the original 
to the preposition are, O-U-R. And then I would think further on that, and how would our be understood? Would it be our collective reason unity or our individual reason unity? So um, that, that's, that's what kind of captured my attention. And then speech in terms of general forms. This week I was working on a translation of something from English to Japanese and from Japanese back to English. And we're trying to find out how to say second grade in, in English, which was translated by the Japanese translator into grade two. So the difference is subtle even for an English speaker. Second grade could be the grade that comes after grade one, just after kindergarten. Could be subperfect. It could be many things. And in Japanese, it, I'm not sure if they had specificity for those different types of meanings. Anyway, uh, I had never really thought about how we work so blithely with the translation without considering the original writer's language and intention. Anyway, that's all I have to say. And, and mathematicians are scientists, and that's my opinion, and I'm sticking to it. That's a, that's a, that's a great. And, and let, let's maybe think about that reason to count uh, and see if we can arrive at a, at a reasoned unity that belongs to all of us on that question. And, and so the question you asked, Joel, is great. I mean, focusing on a single word, A, and asking whether it should be our, I, I think is a key point. And it goes back, I think, to what JK said earlier about, you know, maybe, maybe this idea of the soul being public. Um, you know, is it is it enough that when I form my reasoned account of things that I just am satisfied that that's my reasoned account and that's where I will stop? Or do I have to go beyond my reasoned account and go into our reasoned account? Like, does my reasoned account make logical sense when I compare it to the relativity of everybody else's reasoned account? And, and so is it good enough that I make my account of the reasons why? Or do we have to make our account of the reasons why? And maybe that's a little bit of the idea of justice that Plato is brings to us, I think, powerfully in the Republic, um, which we'll get to eventually. Um, so that's a wonderful question. Is a reason unity, is it really our reason unity? And, and the way that language is translated is so important, as I discovered again in that Friday session on the Parmenides that I attended. It was actually with the translator, Mary Louise Gill, who translated the, the Parmenides uh, text. And she, you know, she understands the ancient language and was able to uh, kind of speak to the individual words that I wouldn't otherwise know all of the different potential meanings that they have. But I know Jane in the past has pointed out to translate uh, translation differences and, and they, they do make a difference. Um, so thank you. Um, so we'll, speaking of Jane, we'll go to Jane, and then I have uh, JK after Jane. I also really like the point that Joel made. Um, I actually, like, the, the, my first higher education was, like, translation. Uh, so I'm, I'm bilingual, and I, like, constantly I see 
that, and this was something that was taught to us too, that translation is never about translating the words, it's translating the meaning. And this is where it gets really interesting because like we've seen with previous um, uh, Plato dialogues, I sometimes don't have like the um, more up-to-date up translations and, and I use like the older ones. And it seems to me, it could be quite different. And this really goes back to, well, the language was maybe different, like. A century ago or, or something but there's also this aspect of like the person that's translating the text they're they're using their understanding of the world to translate and understanding of so we have knowledge and we have understanding this is actually something we discussed recently in another group the discussion was really great so um anyway uh, we have knowledge and we have understanding so knowledge can be understood as just knowing like a mere fact of something and understanding is the way that you interpret the way that you infuse meaning into that fact or piece of knowledge. And so that's why it, it can be very important. And sometimes when I'm reading the dialogues, I'm like, what if I was able to read this like in the original, would I be getting something very different out of this or no? But yeah, that's just, that's just, me rambling. Um, anyway, I wanted to point out about, I think a question was asked a bit earlier on about like what a definition is and the way that I see like definition versus idea is sort of like the, it, like being versus becoming. So like our world, our body, based on the platonic understanding of the world is is always being, but never, is always, sorry, is always becoming, but never being because being is like the eternal ideas and forms and definitions are sort of like the, um, the always becoming, but never being. So that's why they're always changing and developing over times as people are changing and developing over times. Right. So um, there are definitions and with, within like um, scientific fields, we see that too. Like when we get new knowledge, we sort of, we add to the definitions because we now know something, something new and we add to that. So that, that was my perception. And what you said at the end there, Jane, certainly is the way I see knowledge as well as it's something that continuously accretes, you know, and the more we talk about it, the more we find knowledge, the more we exchange knowledge, the more knowledge that's built up. So knowledge is just something that continuously adds. Um, and you, you actually raised an important distinction between the words being and becoming. And so again, here, this idea of communication uh, and, and, and that wonderful you know, knowledge that you gave to us about translation. I didn't realize that translation is about translating meaning as opposed to words. And that's a, that's a, that's a very powerful idea that ties into what Joel S said. Um, uh, you know, the, the difference between the word a and our, um, you know, and, and each one has a meaning, but, but Jane, you know, you talked about the distinction between the words being and becoming uh, and that was actually very prevalent in that discussion that I had on, or that I was part of that discussion group on Friday on the Parmenides, mm -hmm. uh, which uses the word being. And actually, I asked a question afterwards, uh, is it possible to contrast the meaning of that word as it's used in Parmenides to the word becoming? And I was thinking when I asked that question of my favorite passage in the Timaeus, which we discussed in, in a few episodes ago here. 28a of the Timaeus, uh, and that distinction uh, that Socrates makes between that which always is and never becomes, and which is therefore comprehended by a reasoned account. And here we have a, 
direct connection to this 249C in Phaedrus, a reason to count. So that which always is and never becomes at, at time AS 28A is comprehended by a reason to count, whereas that which always becomes but never is is comprehended by the unreasoning senses. So that's time AS 28A, and that's the direct connection into, into this passage here that we're discussing at Phaedrus. So what is this difference between being and becoming? And I think you you are helped us understand that definition. And again, is that a definition that is our definition or is that your definition? Uh, to get back to what JK was saying earlier about this kind of public presence of the soul. And, you know, it, and, and what do people think about this idea of the soul here that's presented here in Phaedrus, that's presented in Phaedo, presented in the Mino presented everywhere in Plato's dialogues, you know, so let, let's explore that. So next we'll go to, to JK. Yeah, I want to respond to the, um, the um, question about science and mathematics. Uh, you know, uh, it, um, uh, do most sci sciences and, and, uh, and maybe all sciences, don't they rely on mathematics? Um, you know, and I, I know the most, you know, um, <clears throat> um, modern form of science, uh, quantum physics and uh, relies on math, you know, to do, to understand what's going on at the deepest level of, uh, of matter, um, like uh, string theory, yeah, uh, you know, no, no scientist has ever observed what you know, those, those strings, but they, they extrapolate that from mathematics. So if that's the case, then, you know, um, you have to include the, the mathematics in the science, so you can't, you know. So, so that means that the mathematics is really, you know, is essential, and it is part of science, and it is itself a science, you know, for understanding what's going on. So maybe any systematic study of any uh, a, a topic is maybe considered uh, science, and relies on mathematics, you know to do measurements and so forth and, you know, and I, I, I understand that uh, something like 70% of uh, mathematicians are, 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 are considered themselves uh, Platonists, that they, they can only understand what's going on by, um, you know, um, by this kind of Platonic idea of, uh, you know, uh, eternal forms. But yeah, it, I, I think the question of uh, these eternal forms is interesting because it's it's uh, these are eternal forms of beings that are that do not change, and maybe that's what Plato means by the soul. And uh, but does that mean that it has to that that has that idea has to de deny uh, what does change? You know, the idea of becoming. And the idea that everything changes, you know, seems to contradict that idea that uh, that it's always the same. I don't know. It's an interesting question. One way to merge the two together, yes, they are a beautiful paradox, but also it doesn't have to be paradox in a negative way. Jane mentioned something about its multiple facets. So my uh, the app applying that the application of that to to in this case somehow kind of resolve that the conundrum yes it's a form it's fixed in a way 
but it's also multifaceted to begin with. So it doesn't have to be solved in one way or another. I agree with that too. And I, I want to share just like Jane, I'm bilingual and I, I find two sides of my personality. If I'm in, if I'm speaking or writing or thinking in English, I find that's little different than who I am in my original Turkish language or thinking. And I, I, I write poems in Turkish and I tried translating them to English, but it didn't work because I wanted to write a paragraph of one sentence in, in English. So it's just like the originality of that. I, I couldn't do it. Maybe I will hire someone to do it for me, but it's not. And I realized like if I have the pressure of translating it, a Turkish poem to English, if I have that pressure, I can't write well because I try to balance Turkish and English thinking into one uh, product and, and it comes awful. So I have to really choose who, what, what side of my, 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 my maybe brain I want to use. And that brings me to that question is a, is a math teacher, a scientist, I think that's all how I personally see it in, at this time of my life. I could read, I could listen to many ideas about how you all think or how people have been thinking about it. But this, at this time of my life, here where I am pinned at this moment, I have an idea. And if I am really liking that idea, it's, so, it's almost impossible that you convince me on the other side. Thinking metaphorically and maybe in the uh, religious perspective in the storyline, I think it was remarkable when Adam was asked to name the objects. The objects were there. And if we are talking about a creator who created the objects, of course, like the name is there, but asking a human, what do you think this sh we should name this? So if I name this, that this is a mouse, I know the definition, I put the name meaning and I, I define it. So I think it's about that power of defining and it's, it gets a little complicated when you can do that in two different languages. But yeah, I'm enjoying this talk now too. Thank you. Thank you, uh, JK, Jean, and, uh, and Eva. And, and just before we go to, to Jane, who's got her hand up, um, I just wanted to reflect on this idea of uh, maybe meaning distinguished in a mathematical sense versus in a um, sense of analogy. Um, so JK talked about mathematics and you know, is, is mathematics present in all science? Uh, and I, I'm actually hard pressed to think of a science that doesn't rely on mathematics in some form or another. Although, you know, in the, in our last episode on the Carmides, um, the, the idea of temperance as a science of self 
was presented and uh, temperance being self-control. And so, you know, if we think of philosophy as a science, you know, that what, what we're doing right now here in discussion with each other, if we think of that as a science, uh, where would math fit into that? And maybe that's where Plato has some ideas that uh, he wants us to think about. But this, this idea of the, the forms is kind of, um, you know, general, general things that lead us to specific things. Um, you know, maybe math, math is a good example of, you know, there, there's something where there, there can be maybe no debate about the meaning, like two plus two is four, and there's no debate about that. Whereas more general ideas, there's a, we can debate about the meaning of things. And so maybe I just wanted to, to take the, you know, to draw kind of a conclusion of the last three comments about, and, and to relate it to the idea of the general forms that uh, is being talked about at 249C. And is a general form maybe this idea of cater categorization uh, in our language? Do we categorize things in certain manner? Like is horse a category of things? And then within the category, there's all sorts of specifics, but in the general category of the general form, I'm wondering if that's maybe kind of this, this idea of the forms is that it, these aren't physical, like a category isn't a physical thing, it's a, it's a conceptual thing. I, th I think actually maybe it was Jane who used the idea of concept before. Um, so where the forms may be the conceptuals and then the physical things are the specific realities. Um, and we can maybe talk about that distinction that, that Plato draws in Phaedrus elsewhere of the, uh, and it's in our, maybe in our second reading here that we'll do um, this distinction between uh, reality and true reality. He uses those, those two words as distinct words. How do we define that? Like, is there a dividing line out there in the, the realm of meaning, wherever the realm of meaning is, is there a dividing line between the meaning of horse and the meaning of man, you know, to, to take it to that analogy of the, the charioteer in, in the Phaedrus, the charioteer who's struggling to control two horses. One horse is pulling the chariot is good, the other is bad, and the charioteer, who I think is the analogous to the soul, uh, is, uh, is struggling to bring them both in line. So um, anyway, just wanted to raise that question is, where's the dividing line between meaning of one thing versus the meaning of another? Uh, so we'll go to Jane. Uh, I just um, I just wanted to touch upon what Eva just said um, when she mentioned that being bilingual it feels like you have two personalities. Um, I, I've I've uh, I've like I've spent half my life in Canada and my other half in a in a totally different country that has a totally different culture and it feels like you're being divided and it feels like the perception of each personality based on the language and culture is different. So I have two different systems of perception and those two systems can a lot of the times contradict each other. So uh, one thing that is perceived as in like absolute truth is, is not perceived that way in the other country or culture. And so that, that causes a lot of like dissonance. And this really touches upon what like, this this whole discussion of Plato of is there because each of these systems thinks that what it has chosen is that like 
eternal truth. But the other system of perception that I have, it says like, no, it's not, it's not fitting in. This is like, I'm getting different information. So it's, it's really hard to work with, but it's, it's very interesting. And it touches upon that sort of reasoned unity. You want to get that reasoned unity, but it's so hard because this one system says like, this is right. And the other system says like, no, it's, it's like, I, I know better. This is right. And for example, there's, um, what is freedom? So what is freedom perceived from like the Canadian perspective is very different than what I'm getting from like the other system. That's, that's just an example, but I'm, I'm not going to elaborate on it too much because yeah, I'm, I'm starting to blabber, but that's all I just wanted to say that like Eva just touched upon something I think about all the time. So yeah, th thank you for that. And thank you, Jane. It's uh, uh, just before we go to Jean, I, I just wanted to amplify that comment that you made about two systems of per perception. And maybe after Jean speaks, we'll just talk briefly about the beginning of the Phaedrus, where there are two different ideas about love that are discussed in two speeches, one that Phaedrus makes and one that Socrates makes. And then Socrates declares both speeches to be horrible. Uh, and maybe we can look at the two different systems of perception that they apply in those speeches and why why Socrates deems them to be horrible. So we'll go to Jean. Jean? So multiple system, multifaceted, I think that that maps that kind of connects with the multi, multiple system. Some people say we have a reason system or, you know, system one and system two. System one is more of a quick automatic thinking. So that, so people have a lot of different several different faculties within even one oneself, but also different people or growing up in a different culture, they have a different way of viewing the world, the worldview. So those, I think it is, yes, Jean, uh, Jane pointed out that aspect, but in also another thing that it is said through or not, it doesn't have to be said, but that's also a human condition to where we don't, we can't really, we can't really completely get rid of it. So we can be just mindful of it and put it together to where you don't just like what Eva said that, oh, at this one moment, I kind of, I feel I am so passionate about what I feel at this moment. And that is true. We all experience that all the time. But the important thing is that we don't need to succumb to that feeling momentary feeling. As long as we can just we have a perspective, then we we can allow ourselves to feel that moment, but not get overboard with it. That's a lot of times politically what's happening, and people get extremely polarized, and then they fight with each other, and then it becomes almost uh, a dead end fight kind of thing. Thank you. It was a it was a good point that you made, Jean, about the kind of the connection to time and and how you know that. The kind of system of per, per, perception uh, can maybe change over time or, or realign over time. And, uh, you know, maybe that, that's a good way to think about that analogy of, of that Plato draws or that Socrates draws of the, uh, the soul being kind of like the charioteer who's pulling different horses. So the system that the charioteer has got to work with or the soul has got to work with is the one horse that's driving us to what is perceived to be good and the other horse that is driving us to maybe what is bad or you know just raw desire without any sort of meaning or any sort of reason and you know somehow 
somebody needs to de- establish that dividing line and and really establish the direction and how is the direction established on that basis um, you know in, the, in this distinction of the two systems you know in the opening speeches Phaedrus gives a speech I think it's based on what Lysias said um, about love and this idea that and, and it, may be based in a particular time, it may be based in a particular culture, but this idea that that lovers keep a balance sheet. You know, the word balance sheet is actually used and as an accountant, that's something that resonated as soon as I read those words. So the lover keeps a balance sheet of the good and the bad. So if I love somebody, I'm keeping a balance sheet of the good things that they did, and I'm weighing it against the bad things that they did. And if it goes out of balance, then I'm done with them, right? So uh, that, that was the idea, I think, that came through in um, Phaedrus's speech. And then Socrates' speech um, is one that talked more about this internal struggle. You know, that there's this internal struggle, one half of us is desire ripping away at one half of us, and the other half is this drive towards goodness, and this internal struggle is raging and um, we're always fighting against this internal struggle in, in our search for love. And then that's where Socrates says, you know, both of these conceptions are just totally wrong. If love is, love is good, it can't have those bad qualities. So, you know, what is the definition of love? You know, and maybe that's getting into this idea of the general form. You know, how do we categorize it? Is it categorized as something that has good and bad? Or is it something that just has good? And I think maybe that's what Socrates is concluding about both speeches is that they're horrible because they miscategorize love. But what do people think about that idea? Like, what did, what did you think about those speeches at the opening of, uh, of Phaedrus and this idea of forms being ways of categorizing things? JK? Yeah, that kind of reminds me of, uh, you know, the more modern uh, interpretations of that, uh, that kind of, uh, you know, struggle with, within. It's the, I, I think the Freud was captured it for me, that kind of uh, struggle between, you know, the id and the superego, you know, the, the, uh, the personal, you know, um, uh, uh, biological, you know, uh, you know, desires and, and forces of the, of eros, id, why well, they, they call it eros in, in the Greeks, right? So Freud got, you know, was able to really latch onto that, and then the um, the uh, the culture that we live in, the public, the, we mentioned the public sphere, right, of uh, of language and so forth, and culture, and so there's still this kind of struggle with uh, with the, between those forces, and I guess the the ego is a uh, maybe like a charioteer, you know, is able to find some kind of balance, you know, between the two. Um, the two horses, you know, one going one way, you know, going the other. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so that that's how I kind of saw it, and and it's interesting that uh, in order to uh, you know um, to really um, you know, understand the wholeness of, of this kind of uh, idea, um, the um, you know, for it also uh, in the end posited a death instinct, thanatos. As an important element of the, of the development of the individual, you know, in order to arrive at that public uh, sphere of language and culture and development, you know, the 
the uh, earlier, you know, developmental aspects have to die off, have to kind of, uh, you know, and and he, he posits the Oedipal complex, the, kind, the idea of, you know, uh, desexualization, and even castration, the castration and so forth. And you look at Lewis Carroll's, uh, you know, uh, story of uh, Alice's adventures, you know, into the depths, goes underground and comes back up back to the surface. Is it's also that kind of reliving that 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 experience of of being born and going through these different stages of of uh, development uh, that are you know presexual and you know, erogenous and um, phallic and and uh, and Edpo and desec the whole process of desexualization leads to uh, you know uh, the I it uh, uh, leads to finally thought thought and language and and even towards this transcendental realm of maybe philosophy and and entertaining ideas of the soul and so forth. So that's how that's how I, I, I responded to that. Hmm. The actually your your um, words about Freud were interesting. I, I didn't really kind of realize those connections until you mention them and so I think that's quite helpful to understand that and this this idea of being able to maybe transcend uh, the impermanent realm and to reach a permanent realm um, I think is a consistent theme through through Plato I think that's the you know the idea in Phaedo again that uh, you know that uh, the soul is invisible and it's not subject to to death the way the that the body is and certainly that point is made here again in Phaedrus um, and it, it kind of makes me what you what you just said kind of makes me think again about the um, section of Phaedrus at two forty eight uh, two forty eight D and E where um, Socrates talks about the nine levels of the soul or the nine grades of the soul. And, you know, I guess at first when I read this, I'm, I'm thinking, you know, in my first reading of the Phaedrus, I'm thinking, well, is, is there some sort of elitist concept going here? Um, but no, I, I think understanding more about the nature of knowledge as, as Plato presents it, knowledge is recollection and recollection is the account of the reasons why. Uh, I think the key word uh, at uh, or the key words at 248d are that the uh, a soul that has seen the most will be planted in the seed of a man who will become a lover of wisdom. So I think that's the that's the key part about uh, about that is that the soul that has seen the most uh, that recalls the most. Um, so I think that would be. A good point, uh, Eva. That maybe we could do. We could look at um, the second reading here, like item two, which is on the third page. Yeah, that that one, two forty five C to two to two forty six C. And I'm just wondering if if anybody would volunteer to read this, or if we can maybe pick up on on a few words of this, um, you know, this idea of the soul being immortal and not having a beginning or an end, you know, kind of being this transcendental um, kind of thing that, they, to use JK's word, um, would there be anybody interested in reading this for us? 
or I can I can read it if uh, if we have no volunteers. Well, why don't I why don't I read it? Um, so uh, this is at two forty five C to two forty six C, and I, I just I wanted to think about the logic of this, and and do you agree about the logic of, uh, in this, or or do you see any other um, things in this that we should explore? So. It starts every soul, uh, or in square brackets, or all souls, an alternative interpretation in the footnotes of the text that I'm reading, is immortal. That is because whatever is always in motion is immortal, while what moves and is moved by something else stops living when it stops moving. So it is only when, uh, so it is only what moves itself that never desists from motion, since it does not leave off being itself. In fact, this self-mover is also the source and spring of motion in everything else that moves, and a source has no beginning. That is because anything that has a beginning comes from some source, but there is no source for this, since a source that got its start from something else would no longer be the source. And since it cannot have a beginning, then necessarily it cannot be destroyed. That is because if a source were destroyed, it could never get started again from anything else, and nothing else could get started from it. That is, if everything gets started from a source. This then is why a self-mover is a source of motion. And that is incapable of being destroyed or starting up. Otherwise, all heaven and everything else that has been started up would collapse, come to a stop, and never have cause to start moving again. But since we have found that a self-mover is immortal, we should have no qualms about declaring that this is the very essence and principle of a soul. For every bodily object that is moved from outside has no soul. Well, a body whose motion comes from within, from itself, does have a soul, that being the nature of a soul. And if this is so, that whatever moves itself is essentially a soul, then it follows necessarily that soul should have neither birth nor death. And then I've just uh, I've skipped about a paragraph here, and I've added at the end of this uh, from 246C, um, the words, uh, all soul looks after that, uh, after all that lacks a soul and patrols all of heaven, taking different shapes at different times. So long as its wings are in perfect condition, it flies high and the entire universe is its dominion. But a soul that sheds its wings wanders until it lights on something solid, whether it settles and takes on an earthly body, which then owing to the power of this soul seems to move itself. The whole combination of soul and body is called a living thing or animal and has the designation mortal as well. Such a combination cannot be immortal, not, uh, not on any reasonable account. In fact, it is pure fiction based neither on observation nor on adequate reasoning that a God is an immortal living thing which has a body and a soul. Um, and I've put five different footnotes in this, which I think tied to multiple dialogues that we've looked at so far. Um, the idea in Mino that shape is the limit of a solid. Uh, shape is not physical, whereas solid is physical. Uh, the idea in Fido that, uh, that the soul is, being, is part of the non-composite realm and physical things are composites. Composites have limits, non-composites don't have a limit. And I think that's clearly what uh, Socrates is saying here about the soul. It does not have a limit because if it had a limit, 
then it would stop at some point. And how would it ever get started again? Um, Timaeus, uh, I put a footnote here because the term living thing is used here in Phaedrus with a small l and a small t. And we saw the living thing with a small l and a small t used in Timaeus. But in Timaeus, we saw it contrasted to capital L living and capital T thing. Um, and I think when we talked about it, then we were talking about the distinction as maybe the capital L living thing uh, being universal and the small L living thing being the kind of temporary mortal thing. Um, and uh, then finally, the footnote that uh, talks about the reasoned account, again, relating to time as 28A and also to Mino and the account of the reasons why. So um, I wanted to maybe just pick up on what's being said here in terms of um, that idea, again, of the reasoned account. Where do we make the reasoned account? Um, and, you know, do we, do we believe that the soul is immortal in the way here that Socrates is, is describing? I'm wondering what people, uh, what, what people think about this particular section. Is there anything in this that, that, that strikes you? Uh, anything about this that, uh, anything about the logic that strikes you? I mean, do you agree that if the soul had a, if the soul had an ending, how would it ever start again? I, I found that to be an interesting way of thinking about it. I hadn't thought about it that, that way before. Uh, we have Jean and then JK. Jean? Yeah, I think there is a logical problem there. And I'm just suggesting the, the question that I have, and maybe you could have some conversation. So the part that the question almost doesn't slightly does not make sense, although it is a very, very interesting question. I think that there is a meaning to it. So, so it's interesting in that sense is that if soul is public, and I think we kind of sort of established or going that direction, if soul is public, then how can it die? And uh, it doesn't even have a beginning, so it cannot die if it is public. So for me, that's contradiction. Why does he even ask that about death? Because if it is public, then death does not even have a meaning because individuals die, something that is in between or emergence does not die. That's my question. A good question. And let's let's try to answer that. Um, and maybe I'll just throw in the idea again to tie to what JK said near the beginning, this idea that the, the soul could be a public thing, or and I think then the word public sphere got used. And is there, maybe I'll ask it this way, is there a an individual sphere for the soul and then a public sphere that kind of overlaps it? Um, and maybe one one goes away at a particular point, but continues to have some sort of a resonating effect on the other. Uh, I'll just throw that idea out there, but JK? Yeah, so if uh, the soul, you know, comes about by, by use of language, you know, then how does that become, you know, in, uh, become uh, uh, immortal? Um, yeah, that's, uh, it's kind of a, 
you know, uh, he's saying that the soul has no beginning and no end. Um, but you know, how is he? How is he? Uh, uh, how does he arrive at that? I think he, he's just he he's just positing at the beginning. You know, <laughs> at the, the soul immortal, and then he he from that he just um, you know argues from there. So that he's beginning with a premise that we can ask questions about, but it's not a uh, it's not a complete. Uh, cohesive argument so yeah i think i i understand, i agree with that i think he's he's more throwing a socratic question to us okay yeah and so there there's maybe no proof there but maybe there's a piece of logic uh that is we're invited to explore and making a reasoned account and maybe that logic is the idea of if the soul ended how would it ever get started again so um as in plato you know, we're always left in the state of, I think it's called aporia, where there's more questions than answers sometimes. And so uh, uh, we have to make our reasoned account. But again, the reasoned account at time as 28A is what's required to understand that which always is, but never becomes. Um, so here we are making a reasoned account. And um, welcome to Nari, who uh, has a hand up and uh, welcome to, uh, to Plato's pod. Yeah, thank, thank you very much. I'm enjoying your uh, discussion very much. Um, I, I think I have more questions than anything else. Uh, science tells us that death is final. So when we die, that's it. But the Buddhists and some of the Hindus uh, believe that a soul is really uh, immortal. We come back. And but then we have no proof for centuries, uh, you know, sort of uh, factual evidence that suggests such. So um, it's it's nice when we age, we think that we will come back. Maybe it makes death easier for us. I don't know. So. Um, uh, very interesting reading, but uh, still on the fence with it. Thank you. Well, thank you. And I, I think you raised the question about, you know, different systems of belief. Um, and certainly, you know, I, I'm not sure that all scientists or all scientists would say that death is final. Um, but maybe that is the sort of somewhat generally accepted idea in science. Um, certainly, I guess in a physical sense, it seems to be final by all by all evidence, but uh, in a metaphysical sense, is it? And it makes me, it reminds me of that video that we started um, our last session on the Carmodies with, that wonderful three-minute clip from Brian Cox's uh, Wonders of Life um, series on BBC. Um, in which he goes to the Philippines on the Day of the Dead, and he's in a graveyard, and there's all of these local people who are celebrating their ancestors in this graveyard. And Brian, at the end of the clip, and, and Brian's a physicist, right, a theoretical physicist, but also one who is very much interested in philosophy and meaning. And at the end of that clip, he says, if science claims that it can explain everything, 
then science needs to explain what is the difference between me, and he points to himself, but he's meaning, he's meaning his animating force when he says me. He's not pointing to his physical body. He's pointing to his metaphysical self. He says, if science claims to, exp- to be able to explain everything, what is the difference between me and this rock? And he points to a gravestone. Um, and the rock is obviously a physical object, but the me that he's referring to is not the physical not the physical himself it's the it's the the self of him that's communicating to us in that invisible realm it's got like his soul is using this invisible channel to communicate to our souls invisibly and so that's why i started that episode with that particularly powerful uh video of brian cox's and so um you raise a good question jk what do you think about that yeah, I think he's uh, he's uh, kind of ignoring the whole idea of uh, of um, you know non-being. the The idea of becoming right is important because um, it's you see it in the in the entire process of a, of a living being, right? You know, from the Freudian uh, description of this development that uh, the death, you know, drive is is inherent in every stage of development. And maybe, you know, uh, in this higher transcendental, um, you know, um, surface that we arrive at, um, that that uh, in order to get to this understanding of, uh, of this uh, idea of the soul, immortal soul, you have to also uh, embrace, uh, continue to embrace that idea of becoming a non- non-being. Like the Buddhists, you know, uh, do that. Um, Hegel's philosophy does that, uh, and, and, you know, has that Heraclitus, you know, has this idea of death. It's, uh, this idea of uh, <clears throat> death drive is very important in in the, our changing identities. And the the, the Buddhists, um, you know, uh, embrace the idea of non non being as an important element of under of arriving at that place where you you are uh, you are maybe a soul a a uh, a uh, a being, a self that's um, that's uh, outside of yourself. That's that's uh, that's that's much more elevated than than what you uh, had been. And so the the idea of non-being, the, the not nothingness, that is uh, embraced in the whole idea of uh, you know uh, Buddhist meditation and so forth, is very important. And I think in this uh, in this argument, I think he's uh, ignoring that the idea of becoming and uh, non-being. Thank you, and and um, you know you you uh, mentioned the word transcendental, and you know I, I have on the screen behind me pi, which is a transcendental value and a depiction of it, and. You know, I think of transcendental in a mathematical, but also in a phys- philosophical sense as something that has no limit, um, and it just goes on forever. Um, and in terms of other mathematical constants, like there's a constant e in the two dimensions, and it's three-dimensional analog, the Riemann zeta function, and it's four-dimensional analog, the gamma function. Those are continuously compounding transcendentals, and so... You know, again, to tie it to this idea of mathematics is, is something that has no limits. Um, maybe is the soul something that has no limits? 
And if it has no limits, how do we get into the forms? Like how, how does the soul understand things? How does it make a distinction in the meaning of things between one thing and another thing? So if we understand horse to be one thing, how do we distinguish that from the charioteer, which is another thing, you know, to use the analogy here that Plato is using uh, here. And so let's explore those questions. Um, I've got three hands up, uh, Nari, then Jane, then Leish. And just looking at the time, we've got a half an hour here left. So that's that's good. We've got time for discussion. So uh, we'll start with Nari. So I, you know, when they look at our DNA and they look at the, the you know, made up of simple, like hydrogen and Comparing when we die, so this energy goes somewhere, whether it becomes like this rock in a graveyard or whatever. So I'm trying to understand myself that I, I understand the concept of the soul because, uh, you know, I grew up in a religious, uh, well, moderate religious. Um, background and there's a lot of questions we are taught to believe a certain way and it is it is ready made religion is ready made for us you know it's, it's that kind of thing but we explore philosophy in a different way with all the questions we have so I, I'm just wondering what happens to the soul where does it does it take you know, like from the Hindu belief, like you could come back as a lower life, you could come back as an animal, you could, you know, that sort of thing. So um, I, I could see the concept that the energy can go, we all are energy beings, and yes, maybe this energy goes somewhere. It mm -hmm. is, and dies, but yeah, so that's it, thanks. Thank you. And, and energy is an interesting word to to use. I think maybe and, and maybe we can explore that in, in the context of what J.K. said, you know, this contrast between being and non-being. So do we think of being as uh, the equivalence of energy? Like if I'm thinking of a, as a physicist, uh, like Einstein established that energy equals mass times the speed of light squared. So mass is physical. Mass is something that has resistance. Energy has no resistance, but mass is mass is physical and has resistance. And so if we think of mass as being, then is non-being energy. And that's an interesting um, way that you said it, uh, Nareen, and maybe something that we can use to establish an understanding, you know, with what JK said, you know, this contrast between being and non-being. I would ask, maybe a thought comes to my mind with what JK said, that contrast between being and non-being is both of those states or are both of those states is like, could we say that non-being is and being is like, what's our understanding of is. Um, so when that's again, taking me back to time AS 28, a, uh, so maybe we can explore that. Uh, and the idea of energy, I, I like that, that kind of, uh, energy and that's non-physical kind of equivalence. Uh, we'll go to Jane and then Leish. Jane? Um, I have, I guess, a sort of question. Um, in, in like nowadays, 
it's, it's, I guess, a popular approach to view the soul as something that is more or less non-existent. So anything that is soul, it would be just like body. And so the body is a very physical thing and it's been studied to a, to a, a great extent, I guess. But soul is a metaphysical category. Um, my forte is definitely not hard sciences, but there are people here who clearly have very um, good understanding of those fields. And I'm just wondering, there is no way that the hard science could touch upon the metaphysical, right? Like there, there's no way to really do that. So uh, my, I guess what I'm getting from this, or if, if that's not the case, I, I, I'd like to find out what, what there is that would suggest a way of reaching over to the metaphysical and trying to examine it or observe it in some way. Um, and so we can't really say if, if there's nothing to suggest otherwise, we can't really say that the soul is non-existent. We can't, I'm not formulating this correctly. Um, we can say that the soul is existent to the same extent that we can say that it is non-existent because we don't have uh, hard evidence to prove either one or the other is true since this is something from the metaphysical. And this kind of brings me to my next point that if we look at another fairly metaphysical um, idea, the idea of meaning of life. So, there, and this is also very popular in, in modernity that there is no meaning of life. It's just you live and that's it and you die. Uh, but there's, um, there's a, some really good work done by Viktor Frankl. Uh, he was, I think he was a psychologist um, and he went through several concentration camps during World War II. And his, one of his observations was that uh, those who were the ones that survived that type of that type of situation, a concentration camp, were not the ones who were the most fit physically, right? That's that's what we would assume. Or the the one who's like the strongest physically would be the one that would survive, but that was not the case. Um, he he made a conclusion that the people that survived were the people who had the greatest grasp of a meaning of life. So they had a reason not to die in the concentration camps. And I think that's a very powerful message. And to me, it somehow feels that it could be connected to like the soul. You can't really prove or disprove. You can just, you can just embrace it or ignore it. it it's, it's up to you. That's, it's just going to shape your personal life, I guess. Um, yeah, that's all I wanted to add. Thank you. Great. Thank you. And. Uh... You know, again, maybe recalling what's said at Time AS 28A is that the empirical senses are used to comprehend that which is becoming but never is. And if we think of maybe that which is becoming but never is, is kind of like the physical realm, um, then the metaphysical realm, I think we talked about, Jane, is comprehended by the reasons, the account of the reasons that we make, and or the reasoned account, as it's called in Time AS 28A, and uh, maybe that leads us back to the forms, you know, that we can't ever visibly see a form, we can't see, taste, touch, smell uh, a form, but does the form exist? Does that general form exist? That ability for the soul to categorize things and to understand meaning from that things. I mean, meaning is something that's not physical. It's, I would say anything that's not physical for me is metaphysical. Uh, I know there's specific uses of the word, but, uh, but you know, for me, it's just not physical. Um, so what do people think about that? Uh, Leish and then JK. 
Um, yeah, so I, I just to respond to JK, um, I, I wonder if there is actually an idea of becoming and non-being in Plato, but um, first, uh, since Jane had such a, a wonderful idea, I wanted to maybe um, see if I could also add to it. Um, because science has the elements of observation and experiment, and we are kind of studying the natural world, I think that we can maybe get closer to the idea of the soul, um, at least that is maybe the label that we use, when we sort of experiment on ourselves, you know, like when someone starts to meditate and they, or they practice maybe the Buddhist ideal of no self, um, being present, that when we experience, we have different experiences um, that are go beyond the ego and go and kind of allow distractions of the earth to fall away. Um, you know, what is that? You know, I think that for a lot of people, and maybe Plato is calling, you know, this truth, this divine way of seeing. And C.S. Lewis said that God is God because God sees clearly. God sees differently than maybe human beings who are embedded in the world. Um, so, so maybe um, soul is what we what we can't scientifically understand, but um, but we feel and we observe. Um, but uh, about non-being and no self, I think that, um, so in 250A, it says, but not every soul is readily prompt by the, prompted by things here on earth to recall those things that are real. This is not easy for souls which caught only a brief glimpse of things there, nor for those which after falling to earth have suffered the misfortune of being perverted and made immortal by the company they, they keep and have forgotten the sacred things they saw then. So there's this idea. That, so how do we remember then? How do we remember our journey being companions to God? I think that, um, this, that maybe Plato doesn't um, articulate this in this section, but maybe maybe the way we remember is entering into non-being and the no self, um, you know, which to me means going beyond the ego. Lot, lot you gave us a lot, a lot to think about, Leish. There, I think that was that was powerful. You know, this idea of the the soul remembering, and again, this idea of knowledge being recollection, and maybe Eva, you could put up that slide of the triangle now as we sort of lead into the end of the discussion because we've looked at this triangle before and i'll just we'll just leave it up here for a few minutes to contemplate it because this is what in timaeus uh the character timaeus said the universe is constructed of triangles and when we looked at this originally and this is why in the, the notes for this session that are posted on the shared drive uh on meetup um, this is why I put this image again here at the beginning uh, on the title page of the notes for today's session. Uh, that red dot that we looked at before was the bond uh, that's drawn between the same and the different. So we'll just leave this image up and we'll consider what you just said, Leish, because I think that's that's quite important. 
Um, and we'll go to JK. Yeah, I think um, this, uh, the idea of becoming, I think, is, is probably, uh, you know, applicable, you know, um, everywhere. But, uh, you know, particularly in our, in our physical bodily, you know, uh, lives, we are in the, in this realm of the finite. And as we change, you know, and, and um, develop and acquire language, we become, we, 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 uh, we understand, we begin to understand what is, what is, uh, like you say, invisible or the infinite. We, 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 rise above the matter of matters of life, uh, you know, the physical state of affairs and matters of life and so, so forth. And, uh, and maybe uh, as we, like you said, uh, matter becomes energy. We, we acquire, you know, more energy uh, and energy, real energy is really part of the infinite. And that infinite realm is the, is the transcendental realm, you know, that uh, that is uh, <clears throat> that is uh, above the uh, the realm of um, finite, you know, bodily state of fair changes. Yeah. So, so that 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 would be the realm of the soul, perhaps, right? And uh, and the soul is is purely infinite. So, you know, in the in in the physical world, the uh, rocks and so forth, those are. Those are, you know, those are in the the in those uh, the finite states of uh, of uh, of the world, and they're going through all these changes, and and they they don't uh, last very long. You know, we we don't last very long. We're we're just finite beings, right? But um, the infinite is is forever. That's a. I think you express that really powerfully. Thank you. The that contrast between finite and infinite or unlimited. In infinite being unlimited and finite being limited, um, and empirical evidence shows that our bodies are limited. We know that, you know, again from that scene that Brian Cox did at the of the Day of the Dead. You know, obviously those bodies that were buried in that graveyard were were limited or finite bodies. But you know, the what really struck me again about that scene was that they were all, all of the local people were there remembering the souls who had left. And so it's kind of like the souls who had departed had this kind of memory that remained after them. And, uh, you know, here we're in the in the Phaedrus, we're talking about kind of the, you know, the soul being able to recall things that it had seen before. And again, that, that passage uh, where, where Socrates divides the soul into nine different uh, stages based on its capacity to remember things that it had acquired before. And uh, um, that was a passage at 248 uh, D and E. Um, and so, you know, I think that that distinction between finite and infinite is, is, is key and, and certainly draws on, I think what Gene was saying about energy being infinite um, you know, again, let, let's contemplate this this triangle drawing as we think about that. Maybe there's something in here that that's worth talking about. Uh, we'll go to Jane. I'm I'm sorry for talking so much. I just wanted to um, comment on something J.K. said a little bit earlier about Buddhism 
uh, bringing a person to closer to a state of non-being, I actually perceive it the opposite way. So to me, based on what I've read in the dialogues, when a person, for example, when he when he's when he's practicing Buddhism, um, to me it would seem, based on the Platonic world, that that person is getting closer to being. So he's he's leaving the. So we have the eternal world, the the eternal, the being, the infinite, and then we have the what is always becoming, the finite. And so the person who practices Buddhism, he's getting closer to the ideal platonic forms he starts he's trying to enter into the eternal world and so he's he's reaching the true form of being versus non-being and the way that i imagine it based on the um on the dialogues is that all of platonic ideas forms uh they're they're a sort of gradient so if we take temperance we have on the left side for example temperance as that ideal platonic form and the opposite of that um, of that gradient is non-temperance. And a person, he can't really reach either of those states, but he can either go closer to non-being and be a non-temperate person, or he could strive towards the temperance, which is true being and a sort of a way of a finite object trying to become infinite, if that makes any sense. Well, at least that's the way I... I perceive things based on what I've read in other dialogues. Thank you. Thank you. And, and uh, as you were saying that, I saw Leisha's uh, posting in the chat screen, which I'm not normally able to follow. Just I, I happen to see it on the screen as I'm focusing on the comments and, you know, is being equal to non-being? Maybe one is a reflection of the other. I don't know. Um, a thought to consider, but uh, thank you. We'll go to um, Joel and then JK. Uh, very quick comment before the meeting comes to a close. Uh, two things. Uh, thank you very much, Joel and JK, for clarifying. So I concede on the mathematics side of being a science. Um, on a very random note, this whole discussion for the good hour and a half, I find so fascinating with the terminology being used in Plato's works. Like, all the pieces that are coming together, this idea of a, a soul, a eternity, um, how it, it lasts forever. Like um, this, it's just so incredible, like how this language, this, the, the whole idea of like the teleological argument, the ontological argument, like I, I like these are so, uh, this is very biblical terminology that I'm like, obviously it's a given. Like I, I've, I used to hear so much about this stuff in the New Testament growing up and how these types of observations were considered divine revelation, so to speak. And the Bible would take credit for that when you kind of like, again, this is speculation, but it's, I find it fascinating how you can compare the dates and, you know, these arguments uh, like predate the idea of Christianity and, you know, it's Plato and Socrates, Socrates and Epicurus, like they're all asking these types of questions and coming up with answers and refuting them long before say Christianity came onto the scene. So it's like, it's, it's just, it's incredible to read this stuff. And it's like, Oh my God, like I, I recognize this stuff in Mark, Matthew, Luke, Revelation. And then it's like, where did these ideas come from? And it's like, it's literally, it's smack dab out of these. I just, I find that incredible. So yeah. 
Thanks. And that's, uh, you know, I think, I think maybe what you pointed to is kind of the timeless form of idea and maybe, maybe the forms, you know, that we started looking at this idea of a general form is something that's not bound to time. Whereas, you know, physical beings are bound to time, but you know, the forms are maybe not, are, are outside of time. And certainly in that Parmenides session on Friday that I attended, uh, you know, one of the ideas about the one is it is is it it is outside of time, um, and so maybe the forms continue through time, as you powerfully said. I mean, these are ideas that Plato brought to us, you know, almost twenty four hundred years ago, and we're still talking about them, and they still have relevance. Uh, so we'll go to J.K. Yeah, I just wanted to try to clarify this idea of. Um being and not being for myself, um, that the, um, that the, uh, the, uh, for Buddhism and maybe for some other philosophies too, the highest, you know, the highest form of being, the most, uh, you know, infinite, right? The infinite form of being maybe cannot be, you know, spoken of, right? It's like that saying from the Tao Te Ching, he who speaks does not know, he, he, he who knows does not speak, right? Um, so it is the kind of being, yes, and uh, but, you know, what is it? And then once you say what it is, that's not what it is. So that's why the Buddhist, uh, you know, emphasis on the, uh, you know, on the idea of nothingness. Um, there's a haiku somebody recently wrote uh, uh, meditation. It says, uh, Zen meditation, nothing to it. So it's like it's all about nothing because once you say what it is or, or conceptualize what it is, that's not what it is. And so the idea of the self it cannot be grasped by some or understood by some concept of the self because once you say what it is, that's not what it is. So the uh, that's the uh, that may be what's what it, what is meant by the infinite, you know, the infinite uh, being. Uh, and also the, the understanding of like uh, the idea of K, uh, uh, cosmos, right? Uh, do we live in a cosmos? No, it's uh, the cosmos is is not, uh, constantly changing because there's all uh, there's the element of chaos. So somebody coined the term chaosmos to describe you know the kind of universe or multi universe that we're living in. So I, I just wanted to you know share that and also. A way of clarifying for myself, yeah, you know, what it, what that is. Thank you. Thank you. I mean, that's uh, yeah. I mean, and, and we uh, use that term, I think, before the chaosmos, and I, I like that because it, it kind of really highlights again Heisenberg's uncertainty principle, which is a principle that is established in physics. It's a universal principle that. Um, you know, we can never find certainty. And, you know, I think, as I've said before, we can be grateful for that principle because it means that we always have agency in this universe, that we, we are agents of change. If, if, if there was certainty, then we would just be programmed and that wouldn't be such a great thing. Um, the other thing I, I, I think I, I really liked what you said actually about, you know, maybe being being nothing. Um, and I think the, the Buddhist concept, if the word, if I'm using the word correctly, shunyata, and it's a word that I learned actually from a mathematician's work, Amir Excel. Um, he, he died a few years ago, but, uh, I listened to an audio book of his, uh, book. I think it was called Finding Zero. 
in which he went across the planet in search for the first recorded instance of the value zero. And he found it, I think, in Cambodia. But it was actually a really interesting tale of his search for the first recorded instance of zero. Um, and maybe that's, maybe that's the importance. And, and you raise a very important idea that this question of observation. And once you observe something, your observation itself changes what you're observing. Um, and that's something that's, you know, certainly a known um, issue or unresolved problem in quantum mechanics. It's what's called the observer effect. And I've mentioned this before because I follow quantum computing. Um, you know, there's this problem with once you observe something, you actually change the course of it. Um, and I think that's an important part about philosophy. You know, the science of self that we're engaging in um, in our philosophical discussions. and. Uh, um, maybe just to uh, end the discussion, just to bring back the triangle, Eva, if you would, if you would mind putting that on the screen, just again to to get us thinking about that, about that image, um, you know, that we've looked at before. I mean, maybe in here we can see same, we can see different. You know, maybe the idea of B being different from C, for example. Um, but B being same as B and B being same as A, maybe. Uh, so this idea of same and different. And again, this is this is what was presented to us in Timaeus as the the basis of the construction of the universe is the triangle. Um, you know, and so I'll leave with I'll leave uh, with a few thoughts here. So we have a triangle here. It's got a a line dividing the base into two, and that line goes up to the apex, uh, and otherwise it's a triangle. So I'll leave the question, you know, what is the number of triangle that we see here? Is it one, two, or three? Um, and if we were to draw an arc from one side of the base that's labeled B to the other side of the base that's labeled B, that arc would curve up, it would touch the apex and curve back down. And that arc we would call mathematically pi, right? And you know what we were talking about limited versus unlimited. Well, if we draw that arc so that it, it starts at one side of the base and ends up at the other side of the base and touches the apex, well, that arc would be pi, right? And that pi is, uh, does pi have a limit? And I think maybe that's one of the reasons I put this image of pi on my screen behind me. Um, is pi infinite? And maybe in this concept of a triangle here, is the base labeled B uh, something that is limited? But then does the base get access to that which is unlimited if it's able to transcend up to that pi, if we're thinking of that arc that would join one side of the base to the other side of the base? And so I just wanted to leave everyone with that thought just again, because Plato was a geometer, um, re recalling the words above the door to his academy, and no one who was bereft of geometry entered these doors. Um, and I think there's some logic maybe, I, and I see the logic. I mean, having studied the, the five solids in particular for a lot of time, the five solids that he brought to us in the Timaeus, I see a lot of logic in it that is, you know, beyond geometry and beyond math, but I think, you know, philosophical logic in it too. So I just wanted to leave us with that theme and um, 
you know, to thank everyone so much for for today's discussion. I mean, wow, I, I just, it's, it's mind blowing. I, I, I learned so much from what people say, perspectives that I hadn't thought about before. Um, and I think this is, this is the very key thing about these dialogues that uh, I'm so keen on uh, every two weeks having them. And uh, now that we've got the, the podcast uh, live online, again, at rss.com slash podcasts, and uh, hopefully within the next day or two on Spotify, uh, I've been having a, a good time actually over the past few days, re-listening to some of the past episodes and uh, listening to some of the points that were that were made that just trigger those aha moments in my mind. So um, I think also, that's, the, um, that's the great part of dialogue. Yes, JK. Also, that uh, triangle is also can also be a pyramid, right? Mm-hmm. And the I, triangle. I just, yeah, I guess there's a reason why the Egyptians mm-hmm. built those pyramids for the. Uh, yeah. For their um, for their pharaohs, right? When they, after yeah. they they died, it can go. So we're looking at a two dimensional triangle here, but uh, when you put it into three dimensions, we get a pyramid. And then if you relate that to the five platonic solids, we're looking at a tetrahedron. Right. Uh, so lots to think about. But we'll. I, I'm not done with this triangle drawing. We'll come back to this triangle image here i just wanted to to get us thinking about that again in but in the context of limited versus unlimited i thought that was particularly helpful so so thank you all again um this has been a great discussion and looking forward to the next one in two weeks and i'll hand it over to eva to wrap up our session today thank you this was plato's pot episode number five it's always exciting to share learn and discuss to get together you know this would make Plato, Eflatun Proud, too. Thank you for joining us today, friends. Thank you, James, and see you at another episode. <laughs>